So the reading is from Mark 14, verse 32 through to 52. It's, I don't think it's on the sheet, but if you've got a Bible, you might want to, to open it. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand." And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as, against, out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. McGuire will be with you. And um, yeah, uh, talking about one of the, seeing as it is Mother's Day, one of the least mothering passages in the Bible in terms of Gethsemane, which is a tough passage to get into, uh, but a really necessary one. We're kind of uh, in that build-up to Easter, we've got, I think, four Sundays, if we include this one, until Easter, and we're, we're moving uh, in that direction and getting ready for that. Um, and I want to tell you where I'm going with this. There's a lot we could have taken out of that passage. I want to kind of hit one big thing out of it, if I can. And um, what I really want to get to is Jesus' reaction to sin. Uh, a Jesus' reaction to, to sin and, and standing before the Father with sin. Uh, I'll open with a wee story that I'll not give you all the background context to, but all you need to know is that at one point, I lived in Sweden and I was working in a school. And uh, when I was out there, uh, I remember one of the kids 
was, uh, I, I work with teenagers, and one of the kids, I remember, I was in the corridor, and I overheard him just saying the nastiest stuff to some other kid. So I did what you're supposed to do, and, you know, pull him over and give him a good strict telling off. And uh, he, he, he goes to me, he goes to me, but, but Jimmy, they all use first names out there, it's a very informal thing, he goes, Jimmy, Jimmy, I don't get a bad conscience. And, and I was like, I do not give a rat's backside about your conscience, okay? Like, you're not allowed to talk like that in this school. And, and you know what, I, you know, give him all of that. The whole teacher thing, right? Which I'm not, a t- I was an assistant, but I ended up doing a wee bit of teaching and stuff. And anyway, um, but that was kind of the, the milieu. Sweden is this super sort of very progressive uh, postmodern society. And they're all the, the young people, so that's what they're all bought into. And I just remember that being a constant sort of thing in the environment out there. Um, every time we did like a movie or a book review, you would ask them, you know, what, what was your main takeaway? What were the big themes? And every single time, someone would inevitably say, you've got to be yourself. You know, that's it. You know, you'd be doing like Macbeth which is, you know, about a king or a guy who wants to be king and ends up murdering the, the incumbent king. And I go, well, what do we learn from that? And someone will go, follow your heart. And I'm like, no, that is the opposite. That is the exact wrong lesson. Like, you could not be more wrong if that's your understanding of this. But, but you know, teenagers, that environment, and, and all buying into the ideology of the day, and that was kind of the zeitgeist. And it is in our day very much the same uh, and increasingly so in society. Uh, if we look at you know, what, what's common, even in movies at the minute and stuff like that, it's less about the hero's journey of overcoming your own flaws and it's more about recognizing your own greatness. It's like you're inherently fantastic and you just need to discover that and have confidence in who you are be yourself, be authentic. That is the, the primary virtue of today's society is authenticity, which is living out your feelings, whatever's, whatever's in your you know, deepest sense of desire. That's kind of the, 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 the place that we live in. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, if we're honest, many of us, we still recognize our flaws and people in our society do that. We're not blind to them. But we have a, a tendency um, to minimize those flaws and to try and distance ourselves from those flaws. So all of our issues, they are issues that have been placed on us by someone else. Someone else did that. That was my parents, that was society, that was this thing or th- that ism or whatever it might be. It all comes back to, hey, I- I'm not really responsible We build these incredibly fancy systems for avoiding blame, shifting blame, minimizing all of our own flaws, fancier and fancier terms for saying, it's not my fault, right? That is the world that we live in. And even in the church, I think we've often, uh, if we talk about in the wider church context, we have a tendency to do this as well. So if we look at how sin is being described which again is the angle that we're going after. Um, a while ago, it was missing the mark, which I think is still downplaying a little bit. It's maybe technically somewhat accurate, but maybe doesn't quite grab the weight of sin. But, but in, our, in our time, a lot of church preaching has moved sin from being something that uh, you do 
uh, and that is your fault to something that has happened to you. It's brokenness. We like the, we like the language of brokenness because it's that very therapeutic, that very, you know, hey, it's not really our fault. It's someone else's fault or it's something that's happened to us rather than something that we are responsible for. And this passage and what Jesus goes through in this um, passage of Gethsemane will be almost impossible to understand if our understanding of sin and what it means as we stand before the Father is as minimal and if it is as low-key as we tend to make it in our society today and in the world in which we live. If we treat it like that, we will not understand Jesus' reaction here at all uh, of what Jesus um, is saying and what he's going through. Because what we see in this passage is, think about this, right? We have Jesus here who just left um, the, the, the Last Supper and uh, he's shared communion, he's instituted communion. And Jesus, up until this point in his life, has been the picture of sort of confidence and um, poise of, you know, complete self-control, perfect self-control. Uh, he, he has been someone who, under the, the most extreme pressure, has always had the right answer. He's always been able to, you know, whenever there's a crowd trying to kill him, he walks away through the middle of it. When he's standing as a 12-year-old amongst the teachers of the law, he's got the right answer. He's never, I mean, it's not that he's like an emotionless robot. We see that he weeps, but he's never sort of in this kind of, of state. And we see that Jesus get to a place in this passage where he has what, what looks to be almost like a, 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 he's come right to the point of emotional breakdown, emotional collapse, where, where he, is, he is in tears, he's on his knees. We're told that he is sweating blood, which, which uh, again, is a, is a, there's some medical term for it that I can't pronounce, but I do have written down, uh, hemat. Yeah, it's a medical thing, um, hematidrosis, I think it is. And he gets to this place of extreme, like, wild, emotional um, sort, of, sort of tension and, and of, of breakdown uh, emotionally that we have never seen Jesus go through before, even though he's, he's been under enormous pressure before. We've, we've never seen him get like this. I don't know if you've ever sort of felt sick with dread, uh, if you've ever, you know, just had one of those moments where you go, oh, I feel horrifically unwell. I remember as an 18-year-old on our uh, school muck-up day, we were told under very strict terms that if anything happened, they would call the police. And me and a few friends, we were Sullivan. Campbell was the local rival. So we stood outside Campbell with a couple of signs for about 10 minutes, complimenting them on how great their school was. Um, or maybe not quite. And anyway, it was, it was very minor. And uh, anyway, we went away and we, we had a big last, you know, meeting. And then the headmaster walked in with a couple of policemen and he pulled out one of the guys who had been with us. And we were just like, oh, I've never felt so unwell. Like, I, I, you, you just, 
you know, at 18, you're, and right now, I, I know they were just trying to scare us, but they definitely succeeded. Like, uh, pulled out one of us and then pulled out another guy. And then that guy did not tout, to be fair to him, right? So we all got away with it. And to be fair, he didn't get in any, any serious trouble, but they wanted to give us a good scare. And they very much succeeded. But, but I remember that feeling, just that pit of your stomach, you know, everything drops, the blood runs away from your face. And, and I try and picture that and then amplify that to much worse and think, right, that's something like what Jesus was going through here. When he gets to that place in the garden, he is, you know, sick with dread. He is, you know, unable to, to physically, his body is reacting, it's almost unable to cope with the stress of what he's going through. And the question is, what is the cause of this distress? What is the thing that's causing him this, this kind of, 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 of fear, uh, if, if that's the right term? I think it is. Um, well, well, we're told, Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, when we see a cup in the Bible, when we see God having a cup, it is always talking about the wrath of God for sin. That, that is what it is talking about. The cup, God's cup in the Bible, when it's used every single time without fail, is always about his wrath for sin. And so Jesus' agony, Jesus' anguish in this moment is about standing before the Father, carrying our sin, and knowing what that means like understanding what that actually looks like, knowing what that means for him, knowing what it means for the father, knowing what it means uh, in terms of that abandonment, in terms of the damage to himself. And it puts him into the place of the most extreme anxiety suffered by anybody ever. Jesus' real fight here, it is not fear of death. It, it isn't, it's not the physical death, I think, that is the primary thing. Because Jesus tells his followers, if people persecute you, you rejoice. If it was just the physical side, it, it would have been much less. But it was actually about taking up our sin. That was the thing that Jesus is responding to here in this way. That's the thing that causes him to, to, to come to this place of anguish and stress and breakdown. We actually see throughout the walk of Jesus, throughout his life, that, that the, the, this is the area where, where temptation seems to be strongest. Um, if, if we go back to, to the, the, the temptations of Jesus in the desert, um, again, there's a lot of stuff in there, but one of the things that the devil is tempting him with is the ability to receive the results of the cross without having to carry our sin, without having to go through it. It's like, bow before me and I'll give you the nations. You know, jump off the temple and, and people will honor and worship you. It was, it was, it was the, the, the thing that, that the devil knew would really tempt Jesus. It wasn't just, you know, standard temptation that we would have. Um, although I think we can say from Scripture that he was tempted in every way like we were. But, but I think the crux of it, the highest, the, the most serious temptation for Jesus was to not carry our sin, to not go through with the cross, to not walk that walk the whole way out. That was the thing that could really push him. Uh, once again, we, we don't see Jesus interacting directly with Satan um, uh, again, although, although he, he does say whenever Peter says, hey, you don't have to go to the cross, he says, get behind me, Satan. 
Um, and we're told at the end of his first temptations, Jesus says, or we're told of, of this, that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. And, and most scholars would believe that this was that moment, that, that the enemy came back once again, and that this was the point where the enemy attacked. This is, Jesus himself calls it the hour of darkness, this moment. So, so the thing that could push Jesus to his very limit was the thought of carrying our sin. The thing that could push him, it, it, that, that idea of, of carrying sin was so repugnant, so horrific, so, so grotesque in the mind of Jesus. It was so unnatural that making the decision to carry it, the voluntary decision that he makes to carry it, was the hardest decision that anybody has ever made, ever because he's the strongest person ever. He's the person who walks through every situation without, without stumbling, without breaking stride, without ever falling down. And he gets to this point and it almost, he almost collapses under the weight. He gets pushed right to his limit, right as far as he can go over the thought of carrying our sin. He's being asked the question, do I carry their sin or not? Like, do I become sin so that they and me might be the righteousness of God or not? That's the thing that he is getting the, 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 the challenge over and, and the, the voluntary decision that he has to make is to carry that. Now, why is that? Why does this push Jesus to this place? I would say this. Sin is obviously much worse than we would dare believe. It is much worse than we would dare. We love to minimize it. We will minimize it constantly. We like to downplay our own sin in every situation. Let's take, take a hypothetical couple. We'll call them Jamie and Danny. You know, I don't know who they might be, but let's imagine there was a couple called that. And, and Danny got annoyed because Jamie had the habit of leaving his dirty clothes on the bedroom floor right? And they conglomerate after a few days into a pile. And let's say Danny was tired of asking him to move them somewhere more suitable. Well, well, Jamie might, I don't know who he is, but he might reply something along the lines of, well, he brought the laundry basket downstairs so that the washing machine could be loaded and someone didn't bring it back up. And Danny might reply that someone else could also have brought the laundry basket back upstairs just as easily. Um, and then he might say something about him being always having to be the one who moves the laundry basket upstairs or downstairs or wherever it has to be. And then he might make an unwise comment about how many dishes he does compared to Danny. And the whole thing might escalate from there into some larger argument. The reality is that even in the smallest of things, we love to deflect blame. Like, we just love to push it. Well, the reason I did that is because of this, and it wasn't, really, you know, it wasn't really my fault. If we really look at all of this, we get down into it, it wasn't me. We love to detach ourselves from sin. We do it in the smallest things, and we will do it in the biggest things. We'll do it in the biggest things. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those, you know, interview with a, a murderer TV shows or whatever, but, but in all of them, there's always this long story about how they got to that place and even if they recognize how bad it is, it's often like, do you know what? I did a bad thing, but I'm not a bad person. And just detach ourselves from the sin. We go, that's not me. 
And we are so good and so adept at this. We're so good at downplaying our sin that it's hard to understand why Jesus would react to it this way. But Jesus did not view sin the way we view it. Jesus had a a biblical view of sin. He had a personal awareness as a holy God of sin. And if we, we look at the Bible, we look at God's perspective on sin, we see that it is this enormous, weary, serious thing. This is not some minor thing. This isn't a flaw. This isn't just merely missing the mark. It's not just brokenness. This is something more. We're told right from the beginning of Scripture that every problem on earth comes back to sin. Adam eats the fruit. And what does it bring? Pain, suffering, death, a brokenness of relationship, a separation between God and man. We're told that the primary issue of mankind is not you know, scientific knowledge, technological development, philosophical understanding. The primary issue of mankind is our sin. That is the root of everything. The main issue in all of history is that every last one of us is a sinner. And and Jesus understands this. And the whole story of Scripture is tied to the theme of sin and tied to the reality of sin and the problems that it causes and the solution that God is going to bring. But but if if we downplay it, we downplay everything. The Bible has a rich vocabulary about how bad our sin is. I I read a very, uh, to be honest, it ends up being a depressing book when it's all about sin, but it talks about this. Uh, It says, you know, it summarizes the language the Bible uses of going astray, willful rebellion, treachery, faithlessness, wickedness, deceit, lawlessness, iniquity, injustice, uncleanness, abomination. Psalm 51, one of the best, or most sort of condensed Uh, chapters on sin and repentance in the Bible. In one chapter, David says of himself, my transgressions, he talks about his iniquity, he says about his sin, he talks about doing evil, brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. He talks about blood, guiltiness in one chapter. The Bible has rich language and it is pulling no punches when it comes to this topic of sin. Sinclair Ferguson writing of that chapter says, David understands himself to be a moral pervert, which is the sort of language that we avert our eyes from and we we just go, I I just don't want to view myself or my sin in that light at all. Like I, I just can't bring myself to look at it through that lens. We want to soften the blow and it's easy to do so because it is so natural and so normal. It is so innate, it's so part of us. Rosaria Butterfield calls sin our first language. We don't see how bad it is. If we do see how bad it is, we see it very, very occasionally in the major sins. But the reality is the Bible talks about this infecting everything that we do. It says that none seek righteousness in Romans 3. It says we all speak evil, we think evil, we have evil motives, we don't respect, we don't honor God. Every motive, every action, it's not as bad as it could be but is tainted by sin. A lot of the time we like to act like we have no choice. It's like, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm just a sinner. I go, well, that's true, but it's not really an excuse. Just because it's natural doesn't mean we're not forced into it. I I heard someone give the analogy of, you know, if if you um, hit, hit someone in the face and you got brought before a judge for assault, and you said, well, judge, 
if I'm honest, deep down in my heart, I just really wanted to hit them. And I can't do much about that, you know. That, that doesn't get you off. That's not, just because it's, it's natural to you doesn't mean you are forced into it. it. It's always voluntary. Every sin is something that we choose to do. And, and yes, it might be our natural state, but at the same time, it's not that we're being forced. There's no one behind us making us do the things other than our own heart, which doesn't exactly get us off the hook. It's serious stuff. And then we think about who this sin is against. We think about it in terms of the Father, that God is holier than we could imagine. And again, the Bible makes a lot of this, um, that, that God's holiness cannot tolerate sin, cannot tolerate the presence of sin, that, that Adam is removed from the garden, from that place of God's presence and blessing immediately, uh, um, of, of the temple and the tabernacle, where there's, there's this separation between God and man because of sin. We can't come close to him. We see over and over again in Scripture that when people see God, they are blown away by his holiness. Isaiah sees him, and he hears angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And over and over again, when people encounter God, they fall down like dead men because they see his holiness, they recognize their sin. It's very clear throughout the whole Old Testament, all of Scripture actually, that sin brings death. Sin requires death. That is how serious it is. And God sets up this entire system of sacrifice in the Old Testament to show over and over again every single day that sin brings and means death. And, and this is why, by the way, Jesus had to die, right? So Jesus, Jesus asks, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Very evidently, it was not possible. Now, we might think, well, God can do anything. Why, why couldn't he just do something else? God can do anything consistent with being God. God can do anything that, that is uh, consistent with his character. So when we say that God cannot lie, he can't lie because it's inconsistent with who he is, right? And, and God cannot save the world without there being a price paid for sin. That's what Jesus is asking. If there's another way to save the world, let me not have to go through with this. Um, th th there was no other way. It's very, very clear that Jesus does not get what he's looking for, desiring here. He, he, he has to drink that cup. There is a cup of God's wrath for sin. God, the holy God cannot just overlook sin. He can't just sort of go, hey, that's fine. Okay, we can do that in our lives. We are able to not demand punishment, but God cannot. It is wrong for a judge to set aside the law. Or he would be a bad judge if he does so. And so God would become unjust unless this sin was dealt with, unless there was death. Justice demands that someone pay the price for sin. It demands it. The thing is, it will either be us or God. Who's going to pay the price? That's the question. There is no, without, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The technical term for this, by the way, if you're interested, is it's called penal substitutionary atonement. For me, it is not a theory. It is the foundation 
of the whole idea of God saving us. It is that we have sinned against the holy God. That sin requires death and someone must die. The question is, will it be us or will it be God? If we understand the seriousness of sin, we understand the holiness of God, we can come to no other conclusion than that someone must die for it. The question is, is it going to be Jesus? Is it going to be us? So it is right that sin is punished. It will either be us or it will be him. And that is what Jesus is recognizing here. Jesus comes to this place of sweating blood in the garden, not because of some mere missing the mark or some mere brokenness, but because he's going to take all of the sin of all of mankind, he's going to gather all of those sins together, and he sees it as, he, as it really is. He doesn't minimize it like we minimize it. He doesn't downplay it like we downplay it. He sees it, and he says, I'm going to gather all all of this sin together. I'm going to put it all on my shoulders and then I'm going to stand on a hill outside Jerusalem and I'm going to say to the Father, to the thrice holy God, treat me like I did all of this. Treat me like I'm the one that did all of this sin. He recognizes the reality of it and the righteous wrath of God will be poured out on one man for all, it will be poured out on Jesus. And that brings him to this place. This whole Easter thing, again, we love to kind of sort of turn it into some peaceful religious thing. We like nice, you know, hey, we'll have a nice quiet guitar song and reflective and, you know, and there's value in that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good. But the reality is this wasn't a nice, peaceful, religious ceremony going on here. This was like a a confrontation, an internal struggle in Jesus himself to decide whether or not he was going to carry that sin. It was beyond what we could ever imagine. It was the most grueling, the most arduous, the, the toughest decision anyone has ever made. I, I love those. Anyone watch that? Um, are you tough enough for the SAS? Uh, yes, okay. Uh, it's, they basically put people, normal people, well, fit people, but not soldiers through SAS training. Uh, they all fail. And I always watch it, and I always think I would do okay. And then I sort of go for like a 5K run, and I'm like, nah, pass the Doritos. Like, I'm out. I'm not. I would never pass that. The reality is, that no single human, SAS selection, 90% of the best soldiers in, in the country fail it, right? But no other person at all could have gone through what Jesus went through. None of us could have seen sin as it really is, could have understood the weight of it, could have recognized God as he really is, and made the decision that Jesus made. We would have, we would have cracked we would have fled. We would have had a psychological breakdown. We would have, whatever, we would have not gone through with this. We would have broken in the face of it. And Jesus did not. Jesus is in that place and he understands the full cup of God's wrath. He understands the crushing weight of sin. He understands the price that he has to pay. He's got Satan, I'm sure, chattering away in the background trying to say, don't go through with it. Don't go through with it. You don't need to do this. You can find another way. Everything within him wants to find another way. And yet he goes, do you know what? I will do this. I will 
lay my life down for them. He gets on his knees before the Father and goes, all right, let's go, let's go. It is astounding. It is amazing that Jesus went through this for us. It is phenomenal. This isn't just some, some nice little thing. This isn't a, a side moment in the story. This is an essential moment. If we want to understand what Jesus went through on the cross, we have to understand sin. We have to understand the holiness of God. And Gethsemane, I think, brings this together for us. What, what does this mean for us today? Uh, let me give you two quick things. One of them, pretty obvious, if, you ha- if you've been listening thus far. Number one, we should not underestimate our own sin. Right? That, 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 that's pretty, pretty obvious here. All of the avoiding blame, and the rationalizing, pretending it's less than it is, it damages us and it is not true. And actually it precludes us from receiving the salvation that Jesus offers. When, when we downplay this, when we say this isn't as bad as we think it is, we put ourselves in a category um, that misses out on salvation because Jesus says, I did not come to save the righteous. I came to save sinners. So, so part of receiving salvation is going, hey, I'm someone that needs it. I, I need that salvation. And actually, I should have paid that price. Like, that's, that's my cup Jesus is drinking. Those are my nails. That's, that's my death he's dying. That's my debt he's paying. Like, like that's where we have to come to. And we, we don't maybe understand that as fully as Jesus does, but we can't just sort of be downplaying it, minimizing it, running from it, pretending it isn't serious. We want to receive that salvation. We have to recognize the seriousness of our sin. But secondly, what does it mean for us? Yes, we should not underestimate the seriousness of our sin. But secondly, we cannot overestimate the goodness of our Savior. We cannot overestimate how good Jesus is. Right? If we downplay our sin and we say, this is a small problem. This, this is, a, this is a, a, a normal thing. This is a minor thing. This is, this is a, you know, not a serious thing. Then we end up with a small solution. And whoever provides that solution has done us a small favor. They, they've, done us, oh, they've done us solid. That's great. You know, thank you for, for sorting out my brokenness. Right? Well, your brokenness is, is part of sin. Like, it's connected to sin. But the reality is, your problem is bigger than that. Your problem isn't something a therapist can sort, right? It's not saying that there isn't a place for that, but what I'm saying is it is much greater than that. Jesus is not a life coach to help you fix a few minor flaws. We have a cosmic problem. We have a, an eternal problem. We have an unpayable debt. We have something that is vastly beyond our capacity. Our sin is so much worse than we think it is. And yet Jesus laid his life down for us. Not whilst we loved him, whilst we were sinners. Like before you said yes to him, he did this for you. It's astounding. This is one of the most wildly, actually Dave spoke about it earlier. It's, I don't know what exactly your language was, but it was it's that idea of humbling and affirming at the same time. At the exact same time, I remember um, I was working for, for a church and uh, 
There was a guy who came in from, from uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. He, he was interested in, in the Christian faith, and I ended up having a conversation with him, and, and we went for coffee. And uh, he, he was very interested in this idea of sort of getting a, a technique. He, he, you know, just they encouraged spiritual practice, and he wanted to get some techniques for prayer and so on. And I was like, well, you know, I can chat, chat to you about the practicalities of prayer, but let me chat to you about the core of Christianity first. And talked to him about this concept and I said look the reality is when you when you understand this you, you get to affirm everything negative about yourself and not run from it not pretend like it's not so like you can go you can look at your flaws and go yeah that was me like I did that and I am like that uh, and yes, that, that is who I am. And, and, and you're not sort of hiding, you're not escaping from it, you're not pretending like it's, it's someone else's fault. You're just going, yeah, like, like, that was me. And at the same time, you can go, and yet God loves me more than I will ever understand and ever know. Not because of my goodness, not because of my innate value, not because I'm some fantastic thing, but because he has chosen to love me, because he has chosen to do this. So at the same time, yes, our sin is worse than you could ever know, but you are more loved than you could ever know. You are more more um, blessed and forgiven than you would ever understand. And, and chatting to this guy, that was the moment that just sort of went, yeah, I want to, I want to, become a Christian that was that that shifted it from being a technique towards self-improvement to a complete reorienting of your entire self and going hey do you know what yeah I'm not going to run from my stuff and often alcohol was you know an escape from that I don't have to run I, I can I can go yes and yet at the same time not be crushed it lifts me up because Jesus saw me as I am and he still went to the cross for me. This is the kind of savior that the world needs. This is the kind of salvation that the world needs. We don't need tweaks. We need a savior from sin. Luther said this. He said, if you're a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Thomas Watson said this, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. Gethsemane, I think, shows us that, that Jesus tasted the bitterness. He saw the bitterness and yet, at the end of it, he said, and I will die for them anyway. I'll take that sin anyway. This is our Jesus. He is an awesome Savior. And uh, as, as we move into Easter, I just encourage us to think about that, rejoice in that, and worship him for that. So uh, why don't we pray, and then I'll, I'll hand back over.